You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, 1 Peter 5 is where we are. It would really serve you to have a Bible open. And let me just go ahead and encourage you to maybe flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and go ahead and mark that as well, just so you'll have that for easy reference. And if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath uh, your uh, seats. So maybe every three or four seats has a Bible and the version, the ESV version that we use here. And so feel free to grab one of those. Um, like I say, it would really serve you to have that. Okay, so we are in the first five verses of First Peter. And I have been waiting for weeks to get to this passage because I think it's a passage that you and I need to hear. And, and here's the reason for that is it deals specifically with the church. And I think that in our culture, there is a stark contrast between how God in the Bible would view the church and how our culture would view the church. And it's not just a cultural issue, though. So I want to make sure and make this point clear. It's not just that there's a contrast between how God in the Bible would view the church over here and how culture would view it over here. It's how professing Christians would view the church over here. Do you see that? I think there's a, a massive difference between how professing Christians view the local church and God's church in general and how God in his word would view it. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. I think in our culture and among Christians, in many ways, the church has fallen out of favor. Um, I, I, think you, I think it would be fair to say that, that among professing Christians, that by and large, it's undervalued, underappreciated, and underloved. But here's the other side of this. When you turn and you start reading in the Bible, you see a different picture of, of that same church that, that God has. Um, like, I, I think the scripture is super clear that, that Jesus actually loves the church. He really does love it. He has like this vested interest in the church, that he appreciates the church. He values the church. I think you see that throughout. I, so this is going to be a Colossians 1.18, where it's going to say that Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head that rules over the church. He's the senior pastor of the church. In um, Hebrews 3, you're going to see that, that Jesus is the apostle that plants the church. In Matthew 16, 18, you're going to see that, that Jesus is the leader, the senior leader that actually builds his church. So you've got all of these pictures. In the passage we're going to be in this morning, 1 Peter 5, you're going to see this idea of Jesus being the chief shepherd of the church that, that rules over, that cares for, that protects the church. In Revelation 2, you see this picture of Jesus as the one when his church is faithless and fruitless that would actually come down because he loves his church, universal so much, actually come in and shut down local expressions of it. So, so you see a picture in the scriptures of a God and of Jesus that actually loves, values, appreciates the church. That's why the statement that, that I hear often among people in our culture that goes something like this. I love Jesus, but I just really don't like the church. I really hate the church. That's why that, that, that statement is anti-biblical. That you can't really love Jesus without loving what Jesus loves. Like that statement doesn't square with scripture. That's the problem with it. Okay, now if you're going to talk about the church, what this passage kind of leads us into, I think it's good to take one step back and get our mind around what the church is. So there's one way that we could look at the church from a 30,000 foot level and talk about the church universal. This is all Christians throughout all history who have been loved by and saved by Jesus. Okay, that's the church universal. Okay, that's all Christians of all time. Now, the church universal, as it has grown and expanded, has these various gatherings of Christians. And that would be what we'd call the church local. 
All right, so you've got church universal, 30,000 foot level, all Christians, all places, all time. And then you've got the church local, these visible expressions of the body of Christ. Okay, now when you just start reading through the New Testament, most of the New Testament is written to individual churches, local expressions, these, these local churches. So you've got um, th- like the letter of, of Ephesians. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth. You've got all of these letters written to these visible local expressions. Okay, now tying these two things together with Christians, like you and I, most of us in the room, here's what we would say when we start reading the Bible. That that God would have all Christians be a part of the larger church universal. So, So you're called as a Christian to be a part of that. When you are saved, you are naturally adopted into this family of God, the church universal. So, so you're, you've got a part to play in, in that church universal. But you're also called to participate in the life of the local church. So, so when you become a Christian, you're a part of the larger church, church universal, and you're actually called to participate in the life of the local church, these visible expressions. Okay, now I would make the case in the, in the Bible, when you start reading, that that is so strong, that, that reality. You're, you're part of the church universal, and you're supposed to be intertwined with your life, connected to the local church. That that is so strong throughout the scriptures, that it would be right to say it's sinful when a Christian is just saying, I'm a part of the church universal. I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not involved in a local expression of that. It would be sinful to say, I'm a part of the church universal, but I'm not leveraging my gifts and abilities that that God has given me for the sake of of God's body, of a local church. I I think it would be perfectly fine to say that. Like the chief shepherd, I hear this, the chief shepherd has given you gifts. He's entrusted those to you for you to steward for his glory and the good of his church. For actually building a church, it's really a profound idea that God in his grace has given you a part to play in his kingdom, not just a seat to sit in in a crowd, right? Okay, so, so God really does love the church. He's given you a part to play in the church. Now, this is really the angst of, of where we are this morning in this passage. Is when I think about God's view of the church, how much he loves it, his view of it. And then I come over here and I consider and just think about man's modern kind of mood toward the church. Christians, professing Christians, their mood toward the church. I just think there's a startling difference that's really scary for me. It's really scary when I look at it. And so I think that that the words of Peter this morning are really important for you and I in, in the room because we're all a part of that cultural air, whether we like it or not. So I think it's important for us to hear these words that Peter's about to say to us. And I think for a lot of us in the room today, it should actually lead us to a good place of repentance this morning. Okay, so with that said, let's read the first five verses together. First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, so uh, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, talking about members on this side of it, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When I think about Stonegate and our future, 
I think this passage is absolutely paramount to us actually surviving and thriving. Like of all the places we've been, kind of First Peter has led us to, I actually think this might be the most important passage and the most important morning for our long-term health as a church. I, so part, part of what's happening today is God is going to clarify out of his word for us what you and he would expect from church leaders and what church leaders and God would expect from church members. So see, all that gets a chance to be clarified in a passage like this and a morning like this. And that's really good for you to know what to pray for in church leaders and for church leaders to know exactly what they can pray for and expect from their people. Okay, now, now with that, um, here, I want to frame the passage like this and then we'll jump into it. I think you could, you could maybe think of this passage um, if you'll use the imagery of a spotlight. So first thing Peter's going to do is he's going to take the spotlight, turn it on, and he's going to turn it toward the pastors or elders of a church, the church leaders. He's going to put that spotlight on them and say, this is what God expects from church leaders. And then he's going to take that spotlight and he's going to turn it over and cover all the members of a place. And he's going to say, this is what I would expect. God is saying this. This is what I would expect from a church member. And then he's going to widen it out and cover everyone that comprises a church. And he's going to say this. This is what I expect from all of you. So I, I want to kind of work through that little, that little imagery there. And we're going to start with the spotlight on pastors. So, so picture this. First four verses, Peter has turned the spotlight. He's looking directly at pastors, at elders, church leaders. And he is saying, this is who you are. This is what I've called you to do here. Okay, so with that said, look at the first five or six words. For, chapter 5, verse 1 says this. So I exhort the elders among you. Okay, so we've got to do some work, and I'm going to kind of put it in one of four questions here. First question goes like this. What are elders? Question number one. What are elders? So he's saying, I exhort the elders among you. So the first thing we've got to figure out is what he's talking about here. And I feel just a little bit of a need to clarify. I grew up in a tradition that, that called their church leaders pastors. I don't know what tradition you grew up in. Elder may be, uh, it, that may be normal for you. It wasn't for me. When I thought elder, I thought one of two things. I thought of the drunk guy that I periodically bumped into on the golf course, one. Or I thought of the, the two guys in a white shirt, black tie that would show up at my door. Those are the two examples I had of what, what an elder was. But that's not the biblical imagery of, of elder. Okay, so let me give you a working definition of what an elder in a local church is. Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men whom God has charged to shepherd the local church. Okay, let me, let me read that for you one more time. Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who God has called to shepherd the local church. Okay, now, depending on what tradition you grew up in, you called them elders, you called them pastors, some of you might have even called them bishops. But, but I want you to see this. In the Bible, all three of those words are used synonymously. They're all used interchangeably. So bishop might be, or overseer would, would be the biblical word for that, translated bishop in English sometimes. So you've got overseer or bishop, pastor, shepherd, elder. All three of those are used interchangeably. You see this in Acts 20. You see it um, in part in Titus chapter 1. And you see it in this passage. Peter is talking to elders and he's telling them what you do. You shepherd, you pastor. And then he says you're going to exercise oversight. So, so you see that all in this. In the Bible, all three of those words are used interchangeably. So if you grew up calling your church leaders elders, it would have been just as good for you to call them a bishop. It would have been just as good for you to call them an overseer. It would have been just as good for you to call them a pastor. So whatever kind of word that you associate with church leadership, 
all of those words would apply if they're, they're interchangeable in the scripture. Okay, but the point is, these are people with deep conviction and commitment to the things of God. They, they are pe- people with proven godly character. That they're humble men. Okay, so the point is that they're that. They're rescued, qualified, and competent men whom God has charged to lead and to shepherd and, and to care for his church. Okay, so this is what an elder is. Okay, I, I want to kind of drill into this with a couple of clarifying kind of ideas here. So first, first way to clarify this, number one, is that elders are shepherds. They're shepherds. And you see this in this passage. You see it in, in verse 2. Do you see it there? Peter's telling them, okay, so you're an elder. I'm exhorting elders, and this is what elders do. They shepherd. He, he, he gives them the command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You see that there? Shepherd the flock. This is what elders do. They are shepherds of a local body. Okay, so, so think about this imagery of shepherding. And I think it's interesting that this is not the prevailing imagery of church leadership in our culture. I think... Uh, the prevailing imagery of church leadership that, that you would find in most churches probably resembles something more like a king or a CEO. Maybe in some places, even an entertainer or an amuser. I mean, you could go across the board in that. But, but the prevailing imagery is not shepherd. And, and I think that's important. That if the Bible, if this is the big image that, that God would use to convey what pastors do in a place, it would be important for us to make sure that imagery stays really firm in our mind when we're trying to describe what an elder is. So here's the sense you get from this passage. That, that Jesus is the chief shepherd, verse 4. He's the chief shepherd. But there is a way in which he would call and equip and entrust his people to pastors or these under-shepherds. So do you see the picture? So you've got Jesus, chief shepherd. It's his flock. And, and you've got him calling and equipping and entrusting that flock to his under shepherds. We'd call them pastors. We'd call them elders. We would call them overseers. So, so the imagery is shepherd. Okay, now I think it's, it's important that when you think of shepherd, you have biblical thoughts that run around that. That you think of that in biblical terms. Um, in his book, and I'm about to read a quote from a guy named Timothy Lanick. He wrote a book called Shepherds After God's Own Heart. And in that book, he's trying to just make the case for how, how the, the tough job that a shepherd has. So if you could picture in, um, in the, the, that Near East area, so Israel, that, that area, if you could picture kind of a desert, barren landscape, and you've got a shepherd who is all alone, he's trying to lead sheep to where they can actually find food and not kill them all. He, he's talking about how it, it creates in them a resourcefulness, some adaptability, like character is a supreme quality that they need to have. So it's important that you have right thoughts that, that in a shepherd, you have this blend of tenderness for his sheep and toughness for them. Okay, and then he goes on to quote this guy named G.A. Smith. I want to read this quote to you. And I just want you to see this image that G.A. Smith is. He's trying to describe what a shepherd would be in Bible times. I, I want you to see this imagery. If you could picture you meeting one of these shepherds. Okay, he, he gives this imagery for it. He says, on some high moor, I I don't use that word, so just to define that, that would be some hill, some mountain. So on some high moor, across which at night, hyenas howl. When you meet him, sleepless, I love this description, sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff, looking out over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of of the people's history, why they gave his name to their king. 
and made him the symbol of providence. Why Christ took him as a type and the model of self-sacrifice. I love that imagery, though. Sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten. It's this blend of toughness and tenderness that's required to be a shepherd. So, so this is the prevailing biblical imagery of what pastoral leadership looks like, church leadership looks like. It's this imagery of shepherding. Okay, now, here's the next thing, just to drill into what, what elders are. Elders are always spoken of in plurality. So when you think elders, it's not one elder in a place, it's multiple, plural, elders in a place. Okay, now, and I think this is interesting, probably needs to be heard, especially in our culture of kind of a CEO mentality when it comes to church leadership, or a kingly mentality where you've got one guy, his will reigns above everything else, that that God has designed his church, the pattern in the New Testament is for a plurality of men to lead that church. Okay, so I want to just give you a couple of illustrations of this from the Bible. So I've got five of them here for you, and we could put another ten of them in the place of these. So here would be one. This is Acts 14, um, verse 23. And this is right after Paul has been beaten and left for dead. And he's encouraging the church. And this is what he says in verse 23 of Acts 14. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Do you see what just happened? Church is singular. Elders are plural. So they've appointed elders in every church singular. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So you've got multiple elders, singular church. Okay, let me give you another one. Acts twenty seventeen. Now from, and this is Paul talking to the elders in Ephesus. So he, he sent to, to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. You see what happened? So he's sending to the church in Ephesus, that's singular, one church in Ephesus, and he's calling the multiple, plural elders to come to him. You see that? One church, multiple elders. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Um, Let the elders, we're talking about one church in Ephesus here. Let the elders, one church, multiple elders, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. See that? One church, multiple elders who who lead that church. Um, James 5, 14. Um, This is a classic passage on some of the pastoral care piece for an elder. Uh, James says this, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for not an elder, but the elders. One church, multiple elders. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, Philippians 1, another illustration of this. Paul, talking to the church in Philippi, says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with, this is singular church, with the overseers and deacons. Okay, do you see the point I'm trying to make? It's singular church, plurality of leaders in that church. So this is how that would flesh out at Stonegate. When we think about the pattern of leadership in the New Testament, we want to follow that pattern. That would mean that the leadership table at Stonegate is not square, or it's not a pyramid that would have me at the top of it. That the table is actually round, where I am giving equal authority to a group of men to help lead this place. Okay, that's the picture. Do you see that? It's a plurality of men, qualified and competent and rescued, that God has entrusted to lead his church. Okay, and and let's go to the the next idea of what what an elder is. So it's plurality, and these elders are qualified. They're they're qualified men. Okay, now I want you to flip back to 1 Timothy 3 with me. Flip back there, and we're going to read through this list of qualifications of elders in the local church. 1 Timothy 3. Okay, and as you're flipping there, let, let me just remind you that we all agree that qualifications are important, don't we? If you were to go get surgery tomorrow, do you want the good old boy who dissected a cat in the ninth grade to do your surgery? 
No, you don't want that guy. I don't want that guy cutting on me. I want the guy that's been to school for like 27 years to cut on me, right? So we would all agree, if you were to get on a plane tomorrow, you don't want the good old boy who loves planes and read a couple of books on how to fly. You want the guy that has actually been trained in this, qualified to fly the plane, don't you? Okay, and how much more when we talk about church leadership? All that's at stake, should these men be qualified to lead? Okay, so 1 Timothy 3, I want to read this for you here. Starting in verse 1, this will be the first seven verses. This is Paul talking to Timothy. He says this, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Let me just point out two things. One, there's an aspiration there. There's a want for that. There's a willingness that's associated with this call to eldership. Okay, but secondly, I I want to just read this again. If anyone aspires, so anyone's the, the, the general idea, anyone aspires, then the next phrase, he desires a noble task. So this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I think it's worth throwing this out on the table just to make sure that we all know where we stand on this. We believe, I believe that the Bible teaches that this is the one role in the local church that is reserved for men. It's a little bit controversial in our day. Not every, not every church agrees. You can find plenty of churches that don't agree. I'm arguing this from the Bible, not culture. Okay, so I just want to say two, and we could spend, we could stay here and literally we could do a month worth of sermons, a set of sermons on this. I'm just going to give two quick kind of primers for this and, uh, and, and we'll keep moving. But let me, let me throw out two just introductory reasons for this. Number one is I think the pattern for the home is the same pattern for the church. So the pattern in the home applies for the church as well. And so we've talked about this at length here, this pattern that God designed, in, he, he wove this into the fabric of creation, of headship and submission in the home. That same pattern is woven into the life of the local church. So, so I would say that, that for one. And the second one, I think there's just a part of this that's intuitive. So when, when you start this passage out in... in um, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, the first word he says is so. And that so connects it back to the passage that we were in last week, this passage that deals with suffering. And I think that there's a serious connection here between what elders do and suffering. That if you can picture when a church is persecuted, here's what pastors do. They go to the front of the line to be persecuted first. And this is what pastors do. So there's a sense in which pastors are the last one off of a sinking ship and the last one out of a burning building. And so now, if I just picture this in our house, this is how I would describe it. Um, if, if a person breaks into my house today, tonight, I wake up, Laura wakes up, we're going crazy, someone's in our house. Here's what I'm not doing. I'm not looking at Laura and saying, hey, Laura, why don't you go take care of that as I run to the closet to intercede on her behalf? Okay, that's not how that's going down, right? Can we all agree with that? So that's not the picture. The picture is the man goes out and he has to be dead before that burglar gets to his wife. Okay, now I think that the same imagery would play true for the local church. That there is a sense in which pastors would bleed first, would be bruised first, and die before any of their people are hurt, and especially before any lady in this room was hurt, right? And so I think in that way, it's part intuitive. That it's partly saying that the pastors would be at the front of the line. They would take the brunt of any sort of persecution and suffering way before any of their people would, especially ladies. Okay, now that's a primer. If you've got other questions or you really are mad about that and want to argue, um, Travis Wyckoff is on staff. Feel free to email him, <laughs> Travis at StonegateHyphenChurch.com. Send him as many emails as you want. Okay, now, and I do want to say this, though, that... Uh, 
that I would see this as the only role in the local church that would be reserved for men. So other than that, we would say this, the pathway for women and the stream for ladies in our place to be fulfilled in ministry, that pathway is wide open. We'd welcome you in a million different ways to serve and to, and to love on people around, around our church. Okay, so, so he says aspiring, and then he says he desires a noble task. Okay, look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Okay, that's a junk drawer kind of a category. In other words, there's no major character defect. So the major character defects have been seen. They're aware of that. And there's actually measurable growth in that. Okay, so, so it's a junk drawer kind of above reproach thing. And then he goes on to say the husband of one wife. So that means he's a one woman man. He has his eyes on his wife and he serves and loves her well. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. I'd sum those up this way. If you were to hear this guy's name thrown out as a potential elder at our place, you, you would, your response would not be, that guy? Are you serious? Do, do you know him? That would not be the response. The response would be, yeah, that would make perfect sense. I would want that person to be an elder at our place or a pastor at our place. So, so sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. They're hospitable. That means their life is open to people, especially people who aren't Christians. They're hospitable. They're able to teach. And, and this, is, this is huge. It doesn't mean they have to stand up and be able to give a 40-minute monologue that's just knock it out of the park week in, week out. But they've got to be able to know the Bible, to communicate the Bible, apply the gospel to the wounds of their people. They've got to be able to do that. They're able to teach. Verse 3, he says, not a drunkard. And listen, when you think... A, drunkenness, it's an addiction. And addictions go in a million different ways. You can be drunk on a million different things, from alcohol to the applause of people, a million different things. So it's in a general sense, it's saying that they're not prone to addictiveness. Okay, you go on here. He says, not violent. His anger's under control. He doesn't want to throw people in an octagon and, and get crazy every time someone crosses him. Okay, so they've got their anger under like measurable control, it's saying. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So, so the, the home is the primary testing ground and proving ground for an elder. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and, and uh, fall into the condemnation of the devil. So an elder is not a place to prove your potential. Do you hear that? An elder is not a place, eldership is not a place, pastoring is not a place to prove your potential. It's a place for those who have already proved their potential. You see the difference in that? That is huge. It's a place for those who have been tested and tried. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. So let me just address all of that from a 30,000 foot level and say a couple of things about it. Number one, that, that really these, these qualifications really describe um, what, a, what a mature Christian should be. So I think there's an assumption that Paul would have. Mature, stable, good Christians actually make really good pastors. And I think that warning needs to be heard in a day where most of our churches are led by pastors who are really not very good Christians. So, so good Christians make good pastors. Secondly, these qualifications are less tied to his work in the church and in large part tied to his work at the house. Another warning that really needs to be heard. Many pastors pastor at the expense of their family, and that's sinful. That in the family is where your ability to pastor in the church is actually proved and tested. And thirdly, they deal with character. All of these 
qualifications deal with character, which takes a lot of time to test, doesn't it? Testing character is hard to do, to know what's on the inside of someone. Okay, so in light of that, I just want to try to catch you up in a couple of minutes here of where we are at Stonegate in relationship to elders. Elders. So a couple of thoughts on that. First, and just right out of the box, we don't have a plurality of elders yet. Okay, we have one elder right now. That's me. That's the only one we have yet. Okay, and here's the reason for that. The last kind of general idea about these qualifications is it takes time to prove character and to test character and calling and to equip for this role. It takes time to do that. And so there's one thing worse than not having a plurality of elders at a church, and here's what that is. Having the wrong elders at a church. Would we all agree with that? That it is worse to have wrong ones than to have one, all right? Okay, so, so with that, um, when we started Stonegate, we prayed that over about a three-year period that God would help identify and call out and equip and begin to, to place that mantle of eldership on a group of people and that we would have the wisdom to recognize that. And I feel like God has started to do that, that he has and is doing that. And so this is kind of currently where we are. We've, we've got a group of men that we are over the next year trying to train up and equip, and hopefully some of them will make it out of that training and actually can become elders at our place. So we're hoping that by the time next kind of spring rolls around, about this time next year, Year, that we'll be able to present these people to you, give you a month or a month and a half to be able to look at them, get to know them. If we've missed something that would disqualify them, that you could help us see that. So we'll give you a month and a half to do that before we install them. And so hopefully by about this time next year, we'll have a plurality of elders at our place. Okay, now um, one last word on that. Knowing that we have one elder right now, I still want to function in a plurality of elders. And so while we have one, this is how we've got Stonegate set up. That we have an external board of pastors that function as an elder board, kind of an external board, until we've got our guys here that are homegrown, our people that you know, we know all of that. And so we, I still want to function in a plurality. So that means that if we're going to make any big decision around our place, that goes to an external board that function as elders to approve, reject, or revise that. It's not, this is not one guy making big decisions around here. Okay, fair enough? So we've got a plurality of elders, they're qualified men. So the second question is that, okay, that's what elders are. Shepherds, plurality, qualified. This is what elders do. So so if you're going to answer the question, what what do elders do? Peter's going to be really helpful in this. And periodically people will ask me, okay, I know you're a pastor, but I have no idea what all you do. So I want to try to explain the role of a pastor, the job description of a pastor. And Peter lays it out in this passage. So let's use shepherding imagery. I think it'd be good imagery for us to to kind of get our minds wrapped around when we answer the question, what, what is the role of an elder, a role of a pastor? Three thoughts. Number one, shepherds, here's what they do. They lead the sheep. So if you can picture shepherding imagery here, a shepherd is responsible to making sure the sheep get to the right place at the right time. A shepherd is responsible for having both a short-term and a long-term vision for his sheep and how they are going to get there. Okay, a shepherd is responsible for all of that. This is the same idea that Peter's saying in this passage in verse 2 where he says you're exercising oversight. That there is a leadership component to what a pastor has to do. That a pastor, just like a shepherd, is responsible for both short-term and long-term vision. To be able to look down the road one year, two years, three years, eight years, ten years, to know where God wants us to be in each of those years and actually make a plan that is feasible to get us there. So a huge part of what pastors and what shepherds do is, is vision casting, is thinking about the mission, keeping us on the mission, 
It's, it's thinking about the one, five, ten-year plan of where we need to go, where God would have us go, and how we're going to get there. Leadership is a huge component of what it means to elder. Equipping and, and creating new leaders to help elder, all of that is a huge component of eldership. So, so there's one part that would say shepherds lead the flock. Here would be another one. That shepherds feed the sheep. So there's another responsibility for elders to teach. Okay, so if you can think of a shepherd, here's what a shepherd has to do. He has to make sure his sheep get to food and water at the appropriate times. In the same way, pastors have, have to make sure their sheep get to, get to food, that they are being fed in the green pastures of God's word. That's the idea. So in this way, this is kind of that teaching and preaching and um, applying the scripture. It's that component of what a pastor does. It's what you, most of you see most, mostly me doing up here. It's me preaching and teaching. And so this is what 1 Timothy 5 is going to say um, is a labor. Preaching is labor. Hard work, in other words, right? And this is the labor. This is the lot in life for a pastor. I love what um, I heard one pastor say that every Sunday morning he gives birth to a, to a sermon. And every Monday, he wakes up pregnant again. This is the life of a pastor. Every Sunday, they give a sermon. And every Monday, they wake up knowing that in a few days, we're teaching and preaching again. And this is a huge part of our responsibility to make sure sheep are fed and well-nourished in the Word of God. Okay, so you've got leading the sheep, feeding the sheep. And here's one more for you. Shepherds care for and protect the sheep. So if you can picture a shepherd, they have a responsibility to make sure they fend off and defend their sheep from fierce wolves, and they have a responsibility to care for and tend to their flock. So it's both of those components, to care for and to protect their sheep. And listen, in, um, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is talking to the to elders in Ephesus, he makes it really clear. It's just a matter of time before wolves come into a place, and he calls them fierce wolves, before they come into a place. That is just a matter of time before it happens here. Do you know that? That wolves are going to be circling around any group of sheep. Every group of sheep attracts wolves. Now, I want to kind of give you this heads up on how you can know a wolf. A wolf is a person who, rather than pointing and drawing people's attention to Jesus, draws and points people's attention to themselves. This is a wolf. Okay, now, now here's the interesting job of a shepherd. It requires great discernment. Because a shepherd has to know if this is an immature sheep, that needs to be loved and cared for, or if this, a wolf, this is a wolf who has to be shot to keep him from killing other sheep. I think it's a lot of discernment to know the difference between those two, right? So this is the job of a shepherd to protect, but a shepherd also cares for. That, that when, a, when a part of their flock is wounded by wolves or just from life in a fallen world, they have a responsibility to care for and to pastor and attend to those people. So, so it's both of those two things. Okay, now, when you think about all three of those, lead, feed, care for, and protect, it's all three of those. Okay, now, now think about this. A pastor is not a person who can preach. You may be a great preacher and a terrible pastor. A pastor is not a CEO. You could be a great leader and a terrible pastor. A pastor is not just a person who cares for and protects the sheep. You can be a great protector and a horrible pastor. A pastor has to do all three of those things well. Are you seeing that? The, the role of a pastor is all three of those things. Okay, now I love how Alexander Strzok, he wrote a book called Biblical Eldership, how he describes this role of pastor. He, he says this, it'll be on the screen for you. He says, out of love, true elders suffer and bear the brunt of difficult people and problems so that lambs are not bruised. 
They bear the misunderstandings and sins of others so that the assembly may live in peace. They lose sleep so that others may rest. They make great personal sacrifices of time and energy for the welfare of others. They see themselves as men under authority, under shepherds. They depend on God for wisdom and help, not in their own power and cleverness. They uh, face the false teachers' fierce attacks. They guard the community's liberty and freedom in Christ that the saints are encouraged to develop their gifts to mature and to serve one another. This is what elders do. Okay, now Peter is going to answer the question, how do elders do that? So how do elders go about doing this role of shepherding the flock? Okay, so I want you to look in verse 2 and 3 of 1 Peter 5. He's going, to walk, he's going to walk us through this. And by the way, I think we would all agree that in America specifically, there is a general distrust toward leadership, whether we're talking about presidents or pastors. There's a general distrust. And Peter cuts right to the core of why that distrust exists. Okay, look at what he says here. So how, how are elders to shepherd the flock? Like this. He says, first of all, look at verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly pastoring, eldering. It's not, it's, it's not a, a job that you have. Okay. So it's not some career that you have. It's a calling of God on a person. So it's not a career. It's a calling. How you treat a job is vastly different than how you treat ministry, how you treat a calling that God has called you to walk in and to live in for the rest of your life. It's a calling. Having a, 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 a sense of God has called me to this. I'm not doing this because somebody twisted my arm. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me. I'm not doing this because my dad does it. I'm doing this because God has called me to it. It's absolutely vital in pastoring, in ministry. It's a necessity. This is why 1 Timothy 3 and his qualifications, he starts with, you have to aspire to it. You have to have this sense that God has called you to it. Now, I want to clarify what you're aspiring to. Because I think a lot of people have a false view of ministry. When they think what they're aspiring to, this is the picture that a lot of people have. God has thrown the touchdown pass. I'm the receiver, splitting defenders, streaking down the field, right? And at the last second, I jump, lay out for the pass in the end zone. I catch it. The crowd goes wild. We win to the touchdown dance, the whole thing. That is not the picture of an elder. The picture of an elder is, uh, this is Ephesians, or, uh, Philippians 1, where Paul says, I am a bond servant of Jesus. I'm in chains. I give up everything for the good of my sheep, for the good of these people. That, that's, that's what you have to aspire to. Not for you to be the guy that is applauded, but for you to be the guy that's crucified. Okay, that, that's the picture. Um, one of my good friends, his name is uh, Jason Johnson. He, he's planted a church about four years ago down in the Houston area. And uh, when he was trying to decipher, is God called him to plant a church? He asked a, a wise guy in his life um, to speak into that. And here's what the wise guy, older pastor, said back to him. You need to lock yourself in your closet, and you need to pray, and you need to have a divine sense that God has called you to do this before you do it. And here's why. If you jump into ministry and you are not called, you shouldn't do it. So you, you do it, and you shouldn't do it. Guess what? Ministry will kill you. If, if you do this, if you jump into ministry and you shouldn't do it, guess what? Or I'm sorry, if, if you don't do this and God has called you to do it, so in other words, you're rebelling against God. Ministry is not going to be the thing that kills you. God's going to kill you, right? And then he gives the last one, though. If you do it, God has given you a sense of, of you're in for this, and then you actually jump into it, guess what? Satan is going to give every last ounce of his energy and breath to trying to kill you. But either way, you're going to get killed in this thing. And so you need to be ready. 
Right? You, you need to make sure that's what you're aspiring to. That you're about to get crucified. That you're at the front of the line of persecution. That you bleed first, you die first, you're bruised first. That's what you need to aspire to. So it's not under compulsion, but it's willingly. And then he goes on, look at the second part in verse 2 there. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Okay, so the Bible is clear that, pa- this is First Timothy 5, that, that pastors, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, that they should be paid. That's a good thing. So Paul, or Peter, is not trying to go against that. He's trying to give the other side of that coin, that pastors should not be motivated by a love for money. That, that compensation cannot be your motivator. Calling has to be your motivator. And listen, I think that needs to be sounded. That warning needs to be sounded in our day where pastors love to make a profit off of their people. There is one of two ways that pastors can relate to you. Way number one, pastors can relate to you in such a way that they use you to build their personal kingdom or pastors can relate to you in such a way that they would die to you for you to build God's kingdom. But that's the only two ways you can relate to people if you're a pastor. It's either you are dying to people for the sake of God's kingdom or you're using people for your kingdom. And, and Peter is reminding us that this is about God's kingdom. Money cannot be the motivator. It can't, the motivator cannot be monetary. It cannot be that. And then he's going to give one more here. Look at verse 3. Not domineering, but being examples. Not domineering, but being examples. So, so here's the tension in leadership. Do you see that phrase in verse 3 where it talks about not domineering over those in your charge? There's a sense in pastoral church leadership that God has entrusted a people to you. But at the same time, he has said, don't domineer. Don't manipulate. Don't coerce. Okay, so you see that tension that's naturally built into that. It's, sometimes it can be a little bit of a blurry line there. Okay, so um, I, I love the illustration that I heard. That I think it's a good imagery for what Peter is talking about. This group of, uh, group of people were on a bus in Israel, and they were touring kind of around um, Israel. And, this, and their tour guide in the bus was, was commenting about how shepherds always lead from the front. So, so they're not, they don't lead from the back, manipulating and coercing their people to go where they want them to go. They lead from the front as examples, uh, uh, being pace setters, uh, allowing people to see where God would want them to go and to naturally follow that. So he's making that comment, shepherds always lead from the front. They don't, they don't push from the back, right? And so about that time, one of the guys in the, in the little tour, guy, you know, in the, in the bus, he looks out the window and says, so is that what you're talking about as a shepherd? And they all look over and there is a guy that is just beating the mess out of these sheep from behind. I mean, he is wearing these guys out. And so they stop the bus. The the tour guide runs over to him, talks to him for a second, and he comes back on the bus with a grin. And he said, oh, this is is great. That's not a shepherd. That's a butcher. And and I think that's an apt description here. That that when, when shepherds turn into people who are from behind coercing and beating and manipulating, they're more like butchers who are trying to kill, not shepherds who are trying to build, right? So I, I, he's giving this example of, of, of not domineering. They're in your charge, but you don't domineer over them. You, you, you are to be pace setters for the people of God under you. Okay, and then why do elders do it? Look at verse 4. So, so why do elders do it? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you see that? So, so he's saying it's not for the applause of people. Here's why you do it. It's this future orientation that runs throughout First Peter. It's suffering now and you get glory later. You get the road of suffering now and you get the satisfying rewards of Jesus later. That, that's why pastors do this thing. 
Okay, now let me, let me switch the spotlight turns now to you as members. What, what are you to do? What is your role? That, that's the role of elders and pastors. What, what is your role? Look at the first part of verse 5 here. Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Do you see it? That's a command. P- Peter is saying, this is the role of members in a place. They are to subject themselves to their pastors. They're to live under the, the, the good shepherding of their pastors. Okay, now this is kind of that point where I, I feel like this is a little bit uncomfortable for me because it almost feels a little bit self-serving. I'm about to tell you to submit to and, and work under and subject yourself to pastors. Okay, so in that, I just want to make two things just clear here. One, this is in the Bible. It's not my idea. This is God's idea. And secondly, if it's God's idea and he actually commands that, I think it's for your good. So I, th- I actually think I would be hurting you if I allowed that little discomfort in me to keep me from, from preaching this to you, right? So this is for your good. This is something we all need to know here. Okay, so I want to run through this quickly. What does it mean when, when Peter says that your members, you, you're to subject yourselves to the pastors? What, what does that mean? So, so let me clarify that command. When, when we were talking in 1 Peter chapter 3, we talked about headship and submission in the home. And when we talked about submission in the home, this is how we defined submission or, or subjecting yourself. We define it this way. It's the joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. The joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. And so it's the same for this. That, that definition in the home applies perfectly to the church. It's a recognition that there is a way in which God has placed authority over you if you're a part of Stonegate. That that's a grace from God that he has done on your behalf and for your good. And you're to learn how to joyfully live and work underneath that authority. And just to make a caveat there, just like we put boundaries around what submission looks like in the home, we said that husbands don't replace Jesus in the home. Neither would, that same boundaries exist in the church, neither would pastors replace Jesus here. Just like you don't follow a husband into sin, you would never follow a church leader into sin. So the same boundaries would a place would would work in the home and in the church. So, so let me try to illustrate. I want to give you three examples of what this might look like in the church, because I think this is really foreign to a lot of us. The fact that God has in some way places spiritual authority over us is really foreign in our culture. So let, let me just help in three kind of illustrations of what this could look like. Number one, it would mean, okay, so when you think about illustrating this command, it would mean that, that there is a way in which you would heed your leader's biblical instruction. So submitting yourself, being submissive, coming up under, joyfully following the, the leadership God's placed in authority over, over you means that you are following that leadership, that you're heeding biblical instruction. Okay, so let me just comment on this. That, that would first mean that you actually probably have to go to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night. Would we agree? Probably means we would start there. That if you're staying up until midnight, one, two o'clock on Saturday, probably going to be difficult for you to have a really productive, fruitful Sunday morning. It would, now think about just the difference it would make if you woke up an hour earlier on Sunday to pray over the scripture we were going to be in, to ask God to speak to you that morning, to pray over your church and your pastors as they preach to you, over your heart, you would hear it. Can you imagine what a difference that would be like for you and just the fruitfulness of this moment? So, so it would mean that you're going to bed early, that you're getting up early so you can pray over the passage, so you can get your heart and your soul ready. It would actually mean that you show up on time I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. But you'd actually be in here and ready like when we start at 9 or when we start at 11. You'd actually be here ready to go. So it's a novel thought, you know? So, so it would mean that you'd get here on time. And then, then you would listen well. 
You would marinate what you've heard from the Bible over your heart and life. You'd marinate yourself in that. And then you'd put that in good community so you'd learn how to apply that to your life. That's what it would look like to heed biblical instruction. That's what it would mean to be subject to your pastors here. Part of that would be heeding their biblical teaching. Secondly, it would mean that you're plugged into the various equipping pathways. That means if you're school age, if you're a teenager, that you're plugged into ministry here that would help equip you. If you're an adult, that you're plugged into home groups that, that are created to help equip you. That's what they're there for. If you're here and you're not in a home group, like if you said, this is my church, but I'm not in a home group, that, that I would say you're not living under this. You're not living in subjection to your leaders here. You're out from under us, if, if that's you. The part of living under that would be you're putting yourself in, in the equipping pathways. That would mean that you're in a home group where we equip and we help train and we help pastorally care for you. And number three, it would mean that you recognize your need for spiritual authority in your life. Do you know how the Bible describes you and I? Let this humble you. Sheep. Sheep are not smart. They're not smart enough to run from wolves, even when wolves are killing all their friends. Sheep are prone to wonder. Sheep need shepherds. Okay, that's all of us in the room. That's how we're described, that we are sheep. Every one of us in the room need pastors, need under shepherds. Even good pastors need good pastors. That's why we're supposed to have a plurality of pastors. All of us need good pastors. And so we all need spiritual authority in our life, people who can speak into our life. If you are here today and you don't think you need spiritual authority, it's because of one of two reasons. Either you have no self-awareness, you aren't aware of how prone to wonder you are, or you're very rebellious and you just don't want to be under the authority of people. But one of those two things are true. So can I just encourage you to make sure that you are under spiritual authority for you to see that as a grace from God to you? And lastly, let me make a comment on this, the command and covenant membership. I want you to think about the dance between pastors and people. We're almost done here. Think about the dance between pastors and people. And look at this verse, Ephesians, or, uh, this is Hebrews 13, 17. I just want you to read this. It's going to be up on the screen for you. This is the writer of Hebrews saying this, Obey your leaders, that's plural, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who would have to give an account. Now, when I read that verse, I am partly terrified by it. Do you know what that means? For the people who have pushed their chips in at Stonegate, I am held accountable for you. One day I will stand before God before you. So, so there's two sides of this coin of the dance between pastors and people. Side one is pastors are charged by God to keep a watch over their flock, over his people. That we are held accountable for that. And the second side of this is that, is that the people are charged to be under those leaders. So, and can I just say, this is what covenant membership is. This is why we do covenant membership. Covenant membership is you willingly and officially recognizing this, that dance. Somebody's in charge of you and you are to be under them. See, when, when we do covenant membership, that's how we know clearly. We've got to clearly define people that I know, we know, pastors here know, that we're responsible for. And it gives you a clearly defined group of leaders that you are, are under and you're working under. So, so do you see what's happening there? When we do covenant membership, it's pastors saying, we willingly and officially say we're responsible for you. And it's you saying, we willingly and we officially say we're under your leadership. That, that's the dance that he's saying here. And so if, you have, if you've been coming here and you've not taken the step towards membership, 
You need to do that to be obedient to this. There's no way for you to be obedient to subject yourself to elders apart from you being a member at this place. So in May, we've got another round of Discover Stonegate. Talk to Travis. Actually, this is for real this time. You can email Travis. He'd love to take care of that and kind of get you rolling into that. Okay, we'll finish here and and we're done. Um, The last piece of this is he spreads the spotlight out and he throws it on everyone in the room as he finishes verse five. You see it here? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to know the thing that could rip our church to shreds? The thing? You want to know what that is? Pride. Pride will do that. If we get leaders in here who are arrogant and prideful and domineering in the way they lead, it will rip our church apart. And if we get people in here who are not willing to get under authority, who are proud and arrogant, too, too proud to, to be under authority. If we get that going in here, it will tear our church apart. We'll have people planning a mutiny every other week. Right? And if you want to see this play out, just look at the landscape of churches and just watch the scars of church splits litter the landscape. They're everywhere. Why? Because one or both parties is not humble. See, you know, when we're prideful, do you know what it makes God do to our church, Stonegate? You know what it makes him do? It makes him actively work against our church. Isn't that a humbling thought? But when we're humble, do you know what God gets to do? He gets to open his hands and pour out grace upon grace upon grace on this place. So maybe we could all just start praying this, that God in his grace would raise up humble, qualified, rescued, competent men who will lead our place. And God would put it in the hearts of our people, you and I, to joyfully and willingly follow their leadership. Amen? And here's what will happen. God will get to pour grace upon grace upon us. Let's pray together. We're going to end by singing a a song this morning. And I just just want to encourage you to sit under that. My hope is that this morning would give you an image of what you can be praying for in your pastors here. And secondly, my hope is that that God would give you a a real clear picture of what it means to be a a member at a place. What what it means to joyfully follow the leadership that God has, in His grace, given you. So I just want to ask you, you, would that command that He gives in in 1 Peter 5, subject yourself to the elders, would would that be true in your life? Are you under the authority of, of pastors? We pray that it would be. And I'm going to pray for you. And before I do, let let me just throw this out. But some of you, God is going to start rustling in your soul a calling to pastor. Like you, normal Joe, not been to seminary Joe. I mean, you. He's going to start rustling that in. And and if he starts doing that, let let me just give you this, this heads up. You need to voice that. You need to let people know around you. That way we can start equipping and working with you to to help go down that road. But but you need to be ready. If if God's aspiring, that means you need to sit on the surgical table and allow the Holy Spirit to start cutting into you good sanctification, Christ-likeness. There's got to be a measurable amount of victory in your life and a movement towards Jesus. So God, we pray for good help. God, I pray for our church. God, that you would make humble pastors around this place. That you would raise them up and that you would make this place a humble people, joyfully willing to follow that spiritual leadership that you have placed over them. And so God, and I know that when you do that, you you tell us here that you have the opportunity at that point to pour out grace upon grace upon grace. So God, we pray that you would have that opportunity to continue that, 
as we look down the road, three, four, five, 10, 15 years into the future, that we would be the story of humble leadership, humble followership, and grace upon grace. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.